Over 800 guests, including diplomats, senators, and other public figures, gazed on as the bride drifted down the aisle on the arm of her stepfather to tenor Luigi Vina's rendition of Ave Maria. She was a dreamy and aspirational vision of post-war American affluence in an elaborate gown of ivory silk taffeta. The dress was imbued with elegance and tradition, yet featured innovative, almost sculptural forms that would profoundly influence the tastes of generations of brides to come. The bodice, with its graceful portrait neckline, fits snugly against its wearer's lithe frame. Ruching at the neckline and bust flowed into interweaving strips of lustrous monochromatic fabric, which stopped abruptly at a narrow cinched waist. Beneath the exquisite exterior of the bodice was an intricate foundational network of on-the-bias panels and S-form wiggle bones providing enough flexibility for the bride to move with ease, yet it was robust enough to offer security and support where it was most needed to maintain a flawless silhouette. Where the interwoven bands came to a chevron point, an enormous bouffant skirt seemed to emerge, suddenly streaming and billowing with each delicate step towards the altar. It was embellished with large, ruffled, concentric circular panels, each with a wax-orange blossom, constructed from the same material at its center. Below the large rosettes were more narrow bands of creamy tiered silk that, like those along the bodice, interlaced with one another. In short, the gown was a work of art. Crafted by meticulous and deft hands, informed by generations of inherited experience and skill. The gown, at once ethereal and substantial, gave the bride the look of a queen, of some almost mythical place. A modern-day Camelot, perhaps. It would be one of history's most photographed wedding dresses, forever changing American bridal style. Yet, the genius behind the renowned wedding dress often went unacknowledged throughout her long career, and was even referred to as High Society's Best Kept Secret. Hello and welcome to History Unhemmed, a podcast that debunks, decentralizes, and digs in to tailored taboos, sartorial scandals, controversial couture, and other infamous moments in fashion history. I'm your host, Felicia. For a list of resources regarding today's episode, check out the show notes wherever you get your podcasts. Some of our content may be disturbing, inappropriate, or perhaps just a little bit complicated to fully grasp for younger audiences. I also cannot promise not to drop a bit of colorful language or some truly awful puns. Therefore, listener discretion is advised. In her trademark wide-brimmed black hat, severely cut black suit, red lipstick and dark-framed glasses, Anne Cole Lowe was a force to be reckoned with. She created evening and wedding gowns, debutante dresses, and special occasion attire for socialites, movie stars, and even a first lady or two over the span of her almost 60-year career. And yet, if not for the work of a handful of contemporary curators and dress historians, the story of this covert couturier might have been completely lost. Anne Cole Lowe was born in the Alabama Cotton Belt town of Clayton on December 14, 1898. At least, we think she was. Her grandmother, Georgia Tompkins, 
had been born to an enslaved mother. Her white father owned the plantation on which she and her mother worked as seamstresses. George's husband, General Cole, General, just to clarify, was his name and not a military title, bought George's freedom around 1860. Jane met Anne's father, Jack, married him, and had Jane and her sister, Sally. That's pretty much the only information that remains about Jack. We don't know if the couple had any other children or if Jack remained in the picture, although it doesn't exactly look like it. By the early 20th century, records indicate that Janie Lowe and Georgia Cole had established a successful dressmaking business in Montgomery, catering to wealthy white ladies. In the state capitol, they were able to establish a clientele of politicians' wives and daughters. Among their regular clients was the First Lady of Alabama at the time, Elizabeth Lizzie Kirkman O'Neill, wife of Emmett O'Neill. O'Neill served as governor of the state from 1911 to 1915, and his white supremacist ideologies would affect the state for decades to follow. He believed in disenfranchising black voters, saying, quote, The white race must dominate because it is the superior race, and in that domination the Negro will find the safest pledge and guarantee of just and impartial administration, end quote. Yeah, let that sink in. This is, unfortunately, the setting in which our story begins. Jane Lowe and Georgia Cole began teaching Anne and her sister how to sew pretty much from the moment the girls were able to hold a needle. By the age of six, Anne had figured out how to construct fabric flowers using scraps her grandmother had thrown away. She modeled them after the ones she had seen in her mother's garden. These flowers would become a kind of signature or calling card for her, appearing time and again on numerous gowns throughout her career. By the time she was 10, she was able to make her own dress patterns. She reportedly made her first dress at 14, a red calico number with black polka dots. She was very proud of it, and despite her momentary concern that the dress was, quote, a little too long, she, quote, wore it to church that Sunday anyway, end quote. In later interviews, Anne would say that sewing was her mother and grandmother's way to make sure that there was, quote, enough for you to do, end quote. As well as keeping the kids busy, Jane and Georgia made sure to pass along a trade that could help the girls to support themselves. In episode 14, about the history of costuming during Mardi Gras, I talked a bit about the limited career paths available for Black and Creole women in 19th century New Orleans. Suffice it to say, options in other parts of the early 20th century Deep South were possibly even more restrictive. Sewing and dressmaking was a fairly common path to steady work for African-American women. But Anne's career would be anything but common. The details of Anne's life get a bit murky here. Some accounts say she left school to marry at the age of 14 in 1912. Yet, according to 1910 U.S. Census records, Lowe was married to a man named Lee Cohn and living in Dothan, Alabama, about two hours from Montgomery. If she was, in fact, born in 1898, she would have been 12 in 1910. An article that appeared in the Saturday Evening Post in 1964 said that Lowe married a man 10 years her senior shortly after her mother died in 1914. In that case, Lowe would have been 16 or 17 years old. All we can really ascertain is that she married her first husband, Lee Cohn, whose name has ubiquitously been published as Lee Cohen, at a very young age and had a son, Arthur, a year later. Not a lot of concrete 
information remains about Anne Lowe's early life. Some things to consider here. The U.S. Census Bureau was not established until 1902, and the federal government of the United States would not codify standard birth certificate applications until 1907. Furthermore, very little family information is available in Alabama's Archive of Vital Records, and it's very possible that things like birth and wedding records for many black families were not kept well, if at all. A lot of what is known is tenuously based on interviews, the first of which she gave in her late 60s. She was prone to giving inconsistent and contradictory information, beginning with the year of her birth. It's possible she didn't remember specific things, or didn't want to make certain things public, like a very early marriage. What we do know, with a bit more certainty, is that in 1914, Jane Lowe died suddenly, leaving several important unfinished commissions. Anne, then about 16 years old, we think, moved back to Montgomery and picked up where her mother had left off. Among the commissions were four ball gowns, one of which was specifically for New Year's Eve. They were all for Lizzie Kirkman O'Neill, who I just talked about. In later interviews, Lowe would say, quote, it was my first big test in life, end quote. From that experience, she gained a lot of confidence. She says, quote, there was nothing I couldn't do when it came to sewing, end quote. Anne's husband, Lee Cohn, was less than thrilled about his wife working outside the home, much less owning and running her own business. In 1916, Lowe crossed paths with Josephine Edwards Lee, the wife of a wealthy Tampa citrus farmer named Dempsey Cowan Lee. Lee happened to be visiting the Dothan area. While shopping in an Alabama department store, Lee noticed several dresses. She admired their intricate detail, which was unlike anything she had seen back in Tampa. Lowe admitted that it was she who had made them. Lee was very impressed to say the least, and asked Lowe to come back to Tampa with her. Lee had twin daughters who were getting married in a lavish double wedding ceremony to two brothers from Tampa's also wealthy Johnston family on December 30, 1916. Lee asked Lowe to create both wedding gowns, each girl's trousseau, and dresses for the rest of the wedding party, including bridesmaids and flower girls. It was a massive affair. Anne would go on to divorce Cohn and take the job. In one interview, she recalls leaping at the opportunity, saying, quote, I picked up my baby and got on that Tampa train, end quote. Lowe recalled her years in Tampa as some of the happiest of her life and really began making a name for herself in Florida. Her work for the Lee family quickly got the attention of Tampa's wealthy women. Lee's twin daughters had dressed alike throughout their lives and requested identical trousseau. Whatever floats their boats, I suppose. I wasn't able to find any images of the dresses, but an article in the January 1st, 1917 Tampa Daily Times states the following. The brides wore beautiful wedding gowns of white satin, embroidered in silver and pearls, and trimmed with exquisite lace also. They were fashioned with long trains. It's probably safe to say that if they were not an exact match, Lowe made them at least coordinating. The local press celebrated her work in its accounts of weddings and various parties and mentioned her by name. She became famous for the delicate and ornate surface decorations on her garments, and an Annie Cone dress was a status symbol. While things were better than they had ever been, she was still a single black mother living in the servants' quarters of a rich white household in the Jim Crow South. 
Anne and Josephine developed a close friendship, and working for Lee would soon open some pretty big doors for Anne. Josephine Lee recognized Lowe's tremendous skill and did not want to see her friend's gift squandered. In 1917, the Lee family sponsored Lowe's enrollment in an established dressmaking school in New York. Lowe enrolled at S.T. Taylor, located at 930 Broadway in Manhattan. S.T. Taylor was also an importer of French fashion journals and patterns from Paris. The concept of the American fashion designer was still pretty non-existent at this point and in its nascency at best, and the wealthiest and most fashionable Americans still considered Paris the ultimate arbiter of chic. A number of American businesses were based on copying and selling popular styles from across the Atlantic. Ready to wear on a designer level simply did not exist, although some major department stores were already very much established. Lord & Taylor was founded in Manhattan in 1824, Macy's in 1858, Bloomingdale's in 1861, and Saks Fifth Avenue in 1864. Bergdorf Goodman would open in 1899. Advertisements for the S.T. Taylor School appeared in the NAACP magazine The Crisis, which was first published in 1910 and remains in print to this day. An ad was also printed in the uh, succinctly titled 1884 publication New York's Great Industries Exchange and Commercial Review, embracing also historical and descriptive sketches of the city, its leading merchants and manufacturers with numerous illustrations. Say that five times fast. The ad read, S.T. Taylor's business has now been established in this city for the last 36 years. S.T. Taylor is the inventor and sole proprietor of the only system of dress cutting that is not a chart, and which is the only perfect system of actual measurement in existence. It has become recognized as such all through America, and though ignorant pretenders and unprincipled imitators have sought to impose their own worthless systems upon the public, yet wherever S.T. Taylor's system is once tried, all others are discarded. Yeah, they had a rather high opinion of themselves. When Lowe first arrived at S.T. Taylor, the school's director, who was French, didn't believe she had the money to pay for her tuition. According to her own accounts, quote, he just laughed. When I showed him my bank book, he stopped laughing, but he still didn't believe that I could learn what he was teaching there, end quote. It should be noted here that the tuition was $1,500, when at the time, tuition to Harvard University, yeah, that one, was between $150 and $300. You heard that correctly. Supposedly, the school's administrators hadn't realized that Lowe was black when she'd been accepted, and insisted on segregating her from the other students, because some of her classmates had a problem sharing the classroom with a black person. Frankly, her work outshone that of all the other students, and ironically, it was her work that was used to provide an example to those who wouldn't share a classroom with her. After several months, Lowe got her diploma and left the school. The reason for her early departure? Well, the head of the school, the same one who didn't believe she could learn what they had to teach her, had to acknowledge that there was nothing left for the school to teach her. Lowe wanted to stay in New York, but the cards were stacked against her. As a black woman with few to no connections, renting a workspace was nearly impossible and prohibitively expensive. Lowe thus decided to move back to Florida, where she lived and worked for the next decade. Tampa at that time had some serious money, with thriving citrus and cigar industries, and the rich were fond of social events that required formal attire. Debutante balls, cotillions, etc. required the proper dress. She moved back in with the Lees, 
before marrying a hotel bellman and day laborer named Caleb West in 1919. Lo, her son Arthur, with her previous husband, and West moved into the city of Tampa, settling on Jefferson Street near the Central Avenue Black Business District. Starting in the 1880s, this enclave formed in the city's mostly white downtown and became home to almost a hundred shops, restaurants, as well as institutions like the Cotton Club, where the likes of Count Basie, Ray Charles, Louis Armstrong, Billie Holiday, Fats Domino, and Ella Fitzgerald performed. The neighborhood would be pretty much wiped out with the construction of Interstate 275 in the 1960s. Unfortunately, this sad fate was not uncommon for a number of prosperous black neighborhoods across the United States, especially around this time. Lowe set up a workshop in the back of her home and began training a staff of 18 seamstresses. Lowe dressed many of the city's most elite ladies and became especially well-known in the Tampa area for the gowns and costumes she created for Gasparilla. Gasparilla is an annual occasion in Tampa featuring a large parade and a series of events named after the famous pirate Jose Gaspar, who never actually existed. He was a legend. Literally. Gasparilla takes place in mid to late January. The revels include a themed ball and a royal court. It's based off of the Mardi Gras cruise of New Orleans. If you're curious about those, I invite you to check out our last two episodes that provide a sweeping overview of the history of Mardi Gras costuming in the Crescent City. Anne Lowe's gowns were incredibly in demand, and she was able to establish a long list of loyal clients. But it wasn't enough. She was working out of the back of her house in a segregated city, unable to get credit and therefore unable to rent a workspace in a part of town that was easily accessible for most of her clients. Furthermore, no matter how well she did in Tampa, the American South was hardly a bastion of high fashion. She was destined for far more than the ballrooms of Tampa, Florida. In 1927, Lowe closed her shop in Tampa, Annie Cohn, and began the move to New York, bringing a handful of her assistants with her. With $20,000 in seed money, considered a vast starting sum at the time, she had rented a third-floor studio on West 46th Street. That $20,000 came from a few places, if interviews are anything to go by. These included Josephine and D.C. Lee and some of their friends, her personal savings, and a loan from Alpha Phi Alpha, Incorporated. Alpha Phi Alpha, founded in 1906, was the first historically black fraternity in the United States. That first year was incredibly difficult for Lowe, with virtually no new clients. Lowe was able to continue working with some of her old Gasparilla connections back in Tampa to keep somewhat afloat, but it was definitely not sustainable. And then she ran out of savings. Around the time the U.S. stock market crashed on October 28, 1929, Lowe was forced to go looking for work and was able to find it with companies like Sonia Gowns Incorporated and Hattie Carnegie. Hattie Carnegie, incidentally, played a role in the rise of some of the 20th century's most important American fashion designers. These included Jean-Louis, Claire McArdle, Pauline Trigger, and Norman Norell. She also continued making gowns on spec. The connections and clients began to roll in. According to the census of 1930, Lowe was sharing her two-bedroom apartment on Manhattan Avenue with her husband, her son, her assistants, and a boarder. Lowe's marriage to Caleb West had begun to sour. 
Although he'd initially been supportive of her work, West eventually hoped his wife would develop, shall we say, more domestic interests. He divorced her, citing grounds of desertion, and it was finalized in 1942. After her divorce from West, Anne Lowe began using her maiden name once again. In 1942, she created a wedding dress for a certain Janet Lee Bouvier, nay, Janet Norton Lee, for the lady's upcoming wedding to Hugh Dudley Auchincloss Jr. Her daughters, Caroline Lee Bouvier and Jacqueline Lee Bouvier, would also become regular clients of Anne Lowe. In 1946, Olivia de Havilland won her first Academy Award for Best Actress for her role in the movie To Each His Own. She wore a strapless, pale blue gown with a sweetheart neckline, the top of the bodice trimmed with tiny ruffles. The dress was built up with layers of tulle and adorned with hand-painted and embroidered flowers, embellished with twinkling sequins. Lowe had made the dress for Sonia Incorporated, owned by Sonia Rosenberg. Vogue declared in 1947 that, quote, only Sonia could design a dress like this one, end quote. Little did they know, by the 1940s, Anne Lowe, as a business, had survived the supply shortages of World War II. Those young women she had dressed for their debutante balls not too long before were turning to Lowe for wedding gowns. Her couture-level gowns at relatively low prices also captured the attention of many members of New York's high society, including Roosevelt's, Rockefeller's, DuPont's, Vanderbilt's, and so forth. In the late 1940s and early 1950s, the New York Age, at no small expense, sent Lowe to Paris several times, not as a designer, but rather as a reporter, to cover the post-war couture shows. The New York Age was a prominent weekly African-American newspaper that was in print from 1887 to 1960, and to them, Lowe's name carried some serious clout. They sent her on an ocean liner and paid for her stay at the historic and pricey Hotel Lutetia, Lowe was able to view shows at Dior, Pekin, and Balenciaga, to name a few. She continued to create, and by the late 1940s, her evening and bridal gowns were available in high-end stores around the country. By the 1950s, Lowe was the, quote, best-kept secret of her high-society clientele. While the sobriquet was bandied around like some great compliment, it was actually not very helpful. Consider this. The same women would openly brag when wearing Dior, Balenciaga, Givenchy, or Chanel. Lowe's work was able to hold its own against any of these designers, yet her name wasn't on their lips at all. The double standard is emphasized further in the fact that her prices were already far lower than any of those other designers I mentioned, and that many of these buyers still haggled with her to lower them even further. I'm pretty sure these women weren't trying to talk Coco Chanel, Pierre Balmain, or even Norman Norell down. I mention Norell because at this point, American designers were still seen as inherently less than their French counterparts. In one interview in the Saturday Evening Post, one of Lowe's New York clients bragged, quote, Miss Lowe's dresses are so expensive, but she has always made special rates for me, end quote. Keep in mind, said customer possessed millions of dollars. There was a mindset here that if she became too well-known, then her prices would go up and she'd be too busy for them to get what they wanted out of her. Keeping her a best-kept secret really benefited the New York elite far more than it did Lowe herself. She would later write that, quote, knowing all the top society people in New York has not been like knowing the Lees and others in Tampa, end quote. In Tampa, she had been acknowledged by name, 
so it's quite clear to see to what she's alluding. Even as business began picking up for her, Lowe commuted to work every day from the Harlem apartment she shared with her sister Sally. Like I said before, these rich women would flock to her and then haggle her down, and too often she would undercharge them. It didn't help that the retailers she made gowns for usually didn't pay her up front or for the cost of her materials, causing her to sometimes accumulate debts to suppliers. In 1950, Lowe was able to open her eponymous shop at 667 Madison Avenue with business partner Grace Stelly, wife of the owner of Stelly Silks. And Lowe thus became the first African-American designer to own a couture salon on this street, an epicenter of fashion in New York. By the end of 1953, Lowe and Stelly had split and Lowe brought her son Arthur on as a bookkeeper and supply manager. This seemed to help her financial situation considerably. As is typically the case, a fashion house has to have a creative head and a financial one and rarely are both possessed by the same individual. Many designers have struggled with money, among them Paul Poiret, Madame Gray, and Charles James. If not for his partner, Pierre Berger, Yves Saint Laurent would probably have met a similar fate. Money would continue to be a perpetual struggle for Lowe. In 1953, Lowe received a call from a longtime client. It was Janet Lee Auchincloss. Her 24-year-old daughter Jacqueline was getting married. The groom, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, was a 36-year-old freshman senator from Massachusetts who came from a family with money. Lowe was asked to dress the extensive wedding party, receiving a commission for 15 dresses. These included Janet's mother of the bride dress and, of course, the bridesmaid's dresses and the wedding gown for the bride herself. Lowe would go on to design a debutante gown for Nina Auchincloss, Jacqueline's stepsister, which would appear in Vogue magazine in 1955. That same year, Lowe opened and Lowe Gowns at 973 Lexington Avenue. Lowe would work with the Auchincloss family until 1957. About 10 days before the Kennedy-Bouvier wedding was supposed to take place, all hell broke loose. A pipe burst in Lowe's studio. Ten of the 15 dresses, including some of the pink taffeta bridesmaids' gowns, and the bride's dress were ruined, covered in rust, grime, water, and whatever else had flowed through those rotting metal tubes. Without a word to anyone in the wedding, Lowe and her team remade almost everything that had taken them eight weeks to create. Again, in ten days. This required purchasing new material and hiring on additional seamstresses. The disaster would be a harsh financial blow to the tune of $2,200, or more than $20,000 in today's money. When the time came to deliver the dresses, Lowe chose to do so personally. She was told to bring them through the back entrance of the Auchincloss Farm in Newport, Rhode Island. And Anne Lowe was having none of that shit. She insisted that if she and the dresses were not permitted to enter through the front door, she would turn around and take them back to New York. Jacqueline Lee Bouvier and John Fitzgerald Kennedy were married on September 12, 1953 at St. Mary's Roman Catholic Church in Newport, Rhode Island, in front of more than 600 diplomats, politicians, and other prominent figures. And that was just the church ceremony. There were 900 guests at the reception, and the press and hundreds of onlookers hanging outside who just wanted to get a glimpse of the charming young couple who were already regarded as American royalty. Legend has it that Lowe was inspired by a gown her mother, Jane Cole Lowe, had made years before. That's uncertain. 
That said, the gown Lowe had made for the bride was instantly iconic and would have an enduring impact on wedding dress styles into the present day. Made of gleaming ivory silk taffeta, its silhouette featured a fitted bodice with interweaving bands and a portrait neckline over a full skirt. The skirt was adorned with large rosettes and tucked bands of creamy silk. Jackie wore her grandmother's rose point lace veil and minimal jewelry. A single strand of pearls, a diamond leaf pin that had been a wedding gift from her in-laws, and a diamond bracelet from the groom. Her bouquet comprised of white and pink orchids and gardenias. The wedding got some serious press. Joseph Kennedy, the groom's father, saw to that. Actually, he orchestrated virtually every detail of the wedding. The bride's gown was crucial to his construction of a romanticized and prosperous American dream. He was intent on creating a quintessential American political dynasty and engineered a royal wedding of sorts befitting that ideal. The truth was that as beautiful and painstakingly constructed as the wedding dress was, the bride hated it. Had she been allowed to choose for herself, Jackie would have picked something sleeker and probably more simplistic in form to complement her tall, thin frame. More than likely, something French. She complained to multiple friends that she felt as if the portrait neckline of the gown emphasized her small chest and that the skirt, quote, looked like a lampshade, end quote. While she did not explicitly say this to Anne, she definitely didn't do Lowe any favors. Reporters covered every minute detail of the wedding, except the designer of the dress, even though it was heavily photographed. The only journalist who mentioned Anne Lowe by name was Nina Hyde from the Washington Post. Jackie's bridal ensemble would become one of her most famous looks, even though it would be a few years before her husband would win the presidency in 1961. What should have been a huge break for Lowe was instead a huge disappointment. For the April 1961 issue of Ladies Home Journal, Jacqueline Kennedy sat down with journalist and personal friend Mary Molly Van Rensselaer Thayer. Thayer would actually go on to write two biographies about Mrs. Kennedy. Anyway, in her interview, the First Lady said that her dress had been made by a, quote, colored woman dressmaker, end quote. That's it. She also mentioned that the maker was not a French haute couturier. Understandably, Lowe was hurt by this slight and wrote a letter dated April 5, 1961, that read the following. Dear Mrs. Kennedy, My reason for writing this note is to tell you how hurt I feel as a result of an article, the last of a series about you in Ladies' Home Journal, in which the reporter stated your wedding gown was made by a, quote, colored woman dressmaker, not the haute couture, end quote. I realize it was not intentional on your part, but as you once asked me not to release any publicity without your approval, I assume that the article in question and others was passed by you. You know I have never sought publicity, but I would prefer to be referred to as a, quote, noted Negro designer, end quote, which in every sense I am. My name does not need to be mentioned as many of my socially prominent customers know I did your wedding dress as I have your wedding portrait prominently displayed on my office wall. Please try to have any reference to me correctly stated, as I have worked hard to achieve a certain position in life, which has been considerably more difficult due to my race. At this late point in my career, any reference to the contrary hurts me more deeply than I can perhaps make you realize. Thanking you for any considerations you might show me, and wishing you and your family well, I remain, as ever, Anne Lowe. Of course, 
When White House Social Secretary Letitia Baldridge responded via telephone shortly after receiving the letter, Baldridge did that unsurprising thing of apologizing without actually apologizing, i.e., I'm sorry you were hurt by X, Y, and Z, rather than I'm sorry for doing X, Y, and Z and understand that my actions hurt you. She told Lowe that Jacqueline didn't actually approve of the use of the quote about a, quote, colored woman dressmaker, end quote. Lowe then lawyered up in the hopes of getting Ladies Home Journal to make amends, ideally in the form of a story about her career. The magazine never did. The early 1960s proved to be a very tough time for Lowe. An endorsement or even acknowledgement from Jackie Kennedy could have helped her tremendously. In 1958, Lowe's son and bookkeeper Arthur was killed in a car accident, and she was never able to find someone capable to step into his role in the business. His death signified a decline in her financial situation, career, and her health. In 1962, the U.S. Department of Revenue closed Lowe's Madison Avenue salon due to unpaid taxes to the tune of $12,800. She was also more than $10,000 in debt to suppliers. To make matters even worse, that same year, Lowe had to have her right eye removed, as it had deteriorated very badly from glaucoma. While she was convalescing, someone paid off her debts to the IRS. She never found out for certain who that was, but always believed in her heart of hearts that it was Jackie Kennedy making amends. It's a nice thought, but we'll probably never know. Shortly after Lowe closed her salon, Saks Fifth Avenue invited her to come work for them in the Adam Room, a special in-house boutique that catered to the highest echelons of New York society. Lowe accepted, as it looked like a very nice offer. Saks, one of the leading department stores in the early 1960s, provided her with a workroom and a cushy title, head designer of its Adam Room, where she would create bridal and debutante gowns. They published a splashy ad with Lowe's silhouette, and the words, Saks Fifth Avenue takes pride in announcing that the debut and bridal gown collection created by Anne Lowe can now be found exclusively in the Adam Room. However, the arrangement ended up being a disaster. Sachs did her dirty, and had her buying her own materials, which, of course, were of the best quality and thus super pricey, and paying her staff out of pocket. She later wrote, quote, I didn't realize until too late that on dresses I was getting $300 for, I had put about 450 into it, end quote. She created 33 gowns under the Adam Room brand. Sachs ultimately set the prices on the dresses, and Anne Lowe ended up grossly, grossly underpaid. While working for Saks, Lowe created gowns for several major national events, including the Texas Rose Festival and the Nebraska Axar Ben Coronation Ball. By the time she realized how badly she'd been shortchanged by Saks, Lowe was back in debt. She left the department store in 1962 and went to work for a small studio located at 510 Madison Avenue called Madeline's Couture. She stayed there until 1965, until cataracts claimed her left eye. Benjamin and Eon Stoddard, who owned Madeline Couture, helped Lowe to obtain a still experimental surgery to remove the cataracts. They also organized a fashion show at the Berkshire Hotel featuring runway models wearing the designs that Lowe had created for their studio. On top of that, they managed to get Lowe on the Mike Douglas show in 1964. While on the show, Lowe told Douglas that her goal was to, quote, prove that a Negro can become a major dress designer, end quote. In 1965, she set up a new workshop. 
in the Thursday, January 21, 1965 issue of the Daily News, Anne Lowe talked to Sidney Fields in his column Only Human. In the article, she said of her struggles in the early 1960s following her salon closure and eye removal, quote, I almost gave up dreaming about beauty and thought only of suicide, end quote. She also mentioned the pre-Kennedy wedding pipe burst. At that point, it was pretty common knowledge that it was she who had created Jackie's iconic wedding gown. Her work began to appear in national magazines, including Vanity Fair and Vogue. She received acclaim from Christian Dior and costume design doyenne Edith Head. Her gowns were picked up and sold across the country in stores like Montaldo's and Neiman Marcus. In 1966, she told Ebony Magazine, I am an awful snob. I love my clothes and I'm particular about who wears them. I'm not interested in sewing for cafe society or social climbers. I don't cater to Mary and Sue. I sew for the families of the social register. In 1967, Josephine Lee's granddaughter asked Lowe for a gown to be auctioned at the Tampa Junior League fundraiser. Lowe happily agreed, noting that she was actually quite curious about the sorts of galas to which so many of her lavish gowns had gone. The Lees brought her to the event, as a guest of honor seating her at the front table. About damn time. Sally Mathis, Lowe's beloved older sister, was her closest friend and caretaker for many years. Sally, like Anne, was an excellent dressmaker and worked closely with her the entire time Lowe was in New York. In September 1967, Mathis passed away. After retiring in 1971, Lowe moved to Queens into the home of Ruth Alexander, who was one of her former employees. She regarded Alexander as a daughter. Between 1968 and 1972, Lowe opened and operated the Anne Lowe Originals shop on Madison Avenue. By the late 1960s, Lowe's career had declined. Society girls were less interested in debutante balls and the like. Instead, they were running around with their rock star boyfriends. And Lowe did try to change a bit with the times, embracing a slightly more risque aesthetic. Tank top necklines and fitted waists. One debutante dress she made in 1967 featured contrasting red roses against a white ground. It looked modest enough from the front, but was backless to the waist. When a shocked mother asked why the back was completely open, Lowe replied that she was not out to create scandal, but rather to, quote, save my beautiful dresses. I wanted to keep the hands of the boys from getting them so dirty when they dance, end quote. The exclusivity of her services that made her in demand also proved to be a double-edged sword facilitating her career's decline. Unlike many other fashion designers of the 1960s, Lowe never licensed her name or designed lower price point items for the ready-to-wear market. She received a number of local honors in New York City during the 1970s following her retirement in 1972. In 1976, she was honored with a luncheon and fashion show dedicated exclusively to her work held by the Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity. On February 25, 1981, Anne Lowe passed away in Queens, New York, at the age of 83. And so ends today's tale about the legendary Anne Lowe. She was a trailblazer, bridging the gap between old-fashioned modiste and fashion designer in the terms we think of today. A true master of her craft, her story is one of triumph and tragedy. Black women have often been underrepresented and excluded from many historical narratives, not just the fashion industry. Anne Lowe's story is a reminder that when looking at history, it's crucial to go back and take a closer look. 
to see what may have been left out, overlooked, silenced, what may have slipped between the cracks and been consequently forgotten. In recent years, there's been a surge of interest in her and her career, and that story is finally being shared and gaining her the recognition she so richly deserves. Like the saying goes, though, there are three sides to every story. Your side, my side, and the truth. And the fact is, the only one who knows and will probably ever know the complete and unmitigated story of Anne Lowe is Anne herself. Thank you for listening to today's episode of History Unhemmed. History Unhemmed is hosted, written, and researched by me and produced by Gary Avazov. If you enjoyed today's episode, please follow us on Instagram or Facebook and be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to drop us a line at historyunhemmedpodcast at gmail.com. And if you're interested in supporting History Unhemmed, we are on Patreon and Anchor. Links are in the show notes. We would love it if you feel up to leaving us a little review. But most of all, and most importantly, thank you so much for continuing to tune in. 